from the American Academy of Dermatology, welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Ben Stoff, Editor-in-Chief. Thanks for tuning in. This is Dr. Jackie Dosal for Dialogues in Dermatology. Welcome to a special quarterly issue with the JAD International founding editor, Dr. Jonathan Cantor, discussing some of the articles featured in the September 2023 issue. Dr. Cantor is an adjunct assistant professor of dermatology at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and editor-in-chief of the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology International. Welcome, Dr. Cantor. It's a pleasure to speak with you. And I also want to thank my predecessor, Dr. Vesna Petronik-Rosich, for paving the way and for her big shoes to fill. So welcome, Dr. Cantor. Well, thank you so much. And thank you again, Jackie. And thanks so much to the entire Dialogues team for having me back. It's really very kind of you. And it's such a pleasure to be able to sit down and just chat about some of the exciting science that we're seeing coming through JAD International. So thanks again. Yeah, and you have wonderful articles being submitted and accepted. And for our conversation today, we selected three articles to discuss, and I think our listeners will really enjoy them. So the first one we're going to discuss is from an article from a group in Japan, Dr. Hashizumi et al. The title is Hydrochlorothiazide Increases the Risk of Non-Melanoma Skin Cancer in Elderly Japanese Cohort with Hypertension. It's the Shizuoka study. And this article is obviously very relevant for practicing dermatologists. You know, it attempts to assess the incidence of non-melanoma skin cancer in hypertensive Japanese hydrochlorothiazide users compared to non-users. So tell me what you thought of this article. Yeah, so I think, you know, this is, you know, one of these fascinating articles. And, and, you know, there's a lot of this in the literature, right? There are a lot of articles where they will kind of look at big questions and we'll use big data and, and examine the question and try to decide, okay, is there an association between X and Y? And from my thinking, the danger is we don't want the dermatology literature to become like Men's Health Magazine, right? Where every month there's a eating pomegranate seeds at 6 a.m. is associated with dramatic weight loss. And the next month it's eating pomegranate seeds at 6.02 a.m., however, is associated with weight gain, right? Because the problem is if you start data fishing, especially with large sets of data, it's very dangerous because you can kind of go down this path where you find lots of associations that really may or may not be real. What I think was the real strength in this study is that the authors went in with a very, very clear and very specific research question. They said, listen, you know, we know about the, you know, association between hydrochlorothiazide use and non-melanoma skin cancer. Uh, you know, what though, what is the, you know, what is the magnitude of that risk? If any, though, when we're looking at a group of Asian patients and particularly patients in Japan, because again, one of the questions had been, well, wait a minute, is this just something that's true? Yeah. I mean, if you take a bunch of Northern Europeans who have a baseline, very high risk of developing non-melanoma skin cancer, then, I mean, basically if you blow on them and fan them, they will probably get <laughs> another, you know, basal cell. Uh, but what about patients who are of Asian descent who may not have as high baseline risk? Is that a real issue. And there has been some research on this area in this area previously, and it's been a little bit conflicting. And so what the authors really did here, though, is they used the fantastic database that they have in Japan, the Shizuoka Koku database. And again, I apologize for, for mangling the, the name of the database. But basically what this is, is it's similar to people who have used the GPRD database in the UK, where you've got a population level database with a lot of detail uh, about 
about, you know, about individuals. And so they took essentially a numerator of over 2 million people and they said, okay, let's look and let's try to see, you know, is there really an exposure here or not? And so they started with that very large population, winnowed it down to those who had uh, baseline hypertension over age of 60, which was about a little over half a million people, excluded those who had not been exposed to any drugs to treat their hypertension, which is interesting. And you wonder if there's miscoding or you wonder if they were just trying to do, maybe those were fairly recent diagnoses or very mild hypertension and you know they were trying to handle it nutritionally, et cetera. But they ended up with just under half a million people who had taken any kind of drugs for hypertension. And that divided then into those who had used hydrochlorothiazide, which was about 12,000 people, and those who hadn't, which was again, almost half a million. They also went to control for issues, right? Because when you're doing this type of study, you want to say, well, wait a minute, there is a propensity that people have to prescribe hydrochlorothiazide for a particular type of patient. So you got to be careful, right? Because when you're looking at non-randomly associated treatments, it's very, very dangerous. And we're going to talk about that actually with one of the next studies that we talk about today. When you're looking at something that is non-randomly assigned, then there are reasons. Doctors aren't random number generators, right? We are doing things for a reason. And so there is a pattern with why someone might prescribe hydrochlorothiazide. And that may differ substantially from people who aren't prescribed hydrochlorothiazide. And so you want to kind of control for that. So they did also did some propensity score matching to kind of account for that. But long story short, what they found is that there was an elevated risk or an elevated risk in terms of the actual association that they were seeing in terms of the hazard ratio of non-melanoma skin cancer in hydrochlorothiazide users. The overall hazard ratio was about 1.58. So about a 50% increase. So two important takeaways from this, I would say number one, that's not a huge number, right? It's not like you're saying your risk of getting non-melanoma skin cancer if you're using hydrochlorothiazide is like 300-fold. So that's number one, that's the relative magnitude of it. Number two, the absolute risk. Again, we're talking about a situation of 0.0x percent going to 0.0x percent. So we're not saying that the absolute magnitude of the risk of developing non-melanoma skin cancer with hydrochlorothiazide is massive. We're just saying that you have a very low base baseline risk of non-melanoma skin cancer, that low baseline risk is increased somewhat. Does this mean that we should stop prescribing hydrochlorothiazide to patients? Absolutely not, right? Because this just means we should be aware of it. Maybe those patients should be examined, have skin exams, et cetera. But again, always looking at those two things in concert, both the relative, like the hazard ratio, but also looking at the absolute magnitude of the risk, I think is really important. It's an important kind of general takeaway for people when they're reading the literature, because if you're going to change your prescribing, you would hate to say, again, we don't want to be men's health here. Again, not to be anti-men's health, and I don't want to get a call <laughs> from the publishers. But nevertheless, we don't want to be doing that where we're you know doing these dramatic headlines and saying, oh, now uh, I'm going to keep away, throw away your hydrochlorothiazide, right? That's not what we're saying. We're just saying, hey, you should be aware that there may be a slight elevation in your risk of developing non-melanoma skin cancer and then act accordingly based on that. I love it. I just loved your whole explanation. And I think you're absolutely right. And there is a difference, statistically speaking, when you go out and set out to answer a specific question versus just mining the data for any associations, when you have a specific theory that you're testing, it's a little bit more, it is more valid of a, an exercise. So the authors did a fantastic job, I think, matching their cohorts. I thought this was an excellent article. And I love how you also highlighted why it's important to study an Asian population and how that's relevant, even this Japanese population, how that translates to how we practice in America, because it does make a difference. And then the one other thing to note is that they did not find an association basal cells. They only found squamous cell risk. Do you have any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, you know, that was an interesting finding. Um, the authors, uh, you know, in the abstract, they talked about the overall number, right? So they talked about, you know, skin cancer, right? They uh, And they said, okay, you know, that hazard ratio 1.58 was for skin cancer. When they looked at subgroup analysis and they said, okay, well, how about basal cell versus squamous cell versus Bowen's? They did see that there was not a significant difference with basal cell. They saw, and of course, because of that, again, you can figure this out statistically, that the association with squamous cell carcinoma was actually diluted in the overall assessment. So that hazard ratio for squamous cell was probably closer to five than 1.5. Uh, I didn't want to lead with that because again, I'm trying to avoid being men's health. I'm not going to say it again. Maybe I will. But again, <laughs> there is that issue. The author speculated that there are a number of possible reasons. One is baseline prevalence of, uh, and baseline incidence really, of uh, basal cell versus squamous cell carcinoma. Uh, the other they thought about was mechanistically, uh, they tried to argue that, well, you know, a squamous cell carcinoma arises from more superficial keratinocytes. And so having a little photo sensitivity might make that more likely. I don't think any of us are really going to necessarily buy that argument. Uh, I didn't. The other, yeah, and the other argument they made, which I think maybe holds a little more water, is that, you know, in terms of associations with different types of skin cancer, and so their argument was like, well, you know, SCC is associated with kind of chronic UV damage as opposed to BCC, and so as opposed, you know, short spurts versus chronic, and so maybe the mechanism of action with that photosensitivity with hydrochlorothiazide is affecting things that way. I don't think we really know enough to make that call right now. Again, to me, this is hypothesis generating. This doesn't mean this wasn't a randomized controlled trial that demonstrated that if you randomize someone to hydrochlorothiazide, X, Y, or Z is going to happen. Uh, it just means, hey, this is further evidence to suggest that there may be an association, further evidence to suggest that it may be worth discussing with your patients. It may be worth being a little more cautious in terms of your monitoring. But again, does this mean you should change practice in any way from this? Absolutely not. And again, I think the important point that I think both of us have emphasized is that when you're using big data to examine questions, it's very, very important to keep these things in mind that if you go fishing, and, and I'm going to step back for one second, because I've talked about this before in these podcasts, but I try to kind of throw these like little kind of basic epidemiology points uh, out there once in a while, because I think it's useful to keep in mind. The reason we say it's important to have an a priori hypothesis that you're testing, just to step back for a moment, and this may be obvious to most of the people listening, but the reason I keep saying how important that is, is because if you think, what is a p-value? You know, the, your p-value, because that's what we mostly still use nowadays, even though there's a lot of pressure in the other direction, which is a topic for a whole other podcast. But, you know, what is a p-value? You're saying, okay, well, there's less than a 5% chance when we say p of 0.05 that what we're seeing is due to chance alone. That's fine if you're looking at one association. So if your question was hydrochlorothiazide and skin cancer, and you said, okay, the chances of seeing this by chance is 2%, great. Then I think it's fairly reasonable to say that this may be a real association. But if you're instead saying, I've got this big set of data, and so I'm going to look at 300 different questions that I can see, 300 different associations, and I'm going to try to see what is significant and what isn't. Well, the problem there is, by definition, one out of 20 things you look at are going to, by chance, show an association. And that's how you get into the pomegranate situation. So it's really important to keep in mind that having that you know, hypothesis that you're testing is so important because otherwise... Because there is a baseline level of association that you're going to see anyway, by looking at multiple things and multiple associations, it may be spurious what you're seeing. And so that's why it's so important. Love it. Thank you. And, and please always feel free to throw out these epidemiologic tidbits, because I think they're such a helpful reminder for people. And last but not least, just a couple other points I wanted to make about the article. They did note an association. It was the SCCs were noted in sun exposed sites, and they were noted in darker skin types. Um, so just further supports, as you said, hypothesis driving information. So great article. 
So I think that was great to discuss. The next two articles are a little bit shorter. The second one we're going to discuss is a group from University of California, Davis. Summermeyer et al. published a study entitled Mohs Micrographic Surgery versus Wide Local Excision for the Treatment of Atypical Fibrosanthoma, a Retrospective Cohort Analysis. And so we all know this is a big problem when patients develop an AFX or atypical fibrosanthoma. And so they were comparing the outcomes of Mohs versus wide local excision, and they found a difference. But as I think you're going to discuss, there were important features of that that we have to keep in mind when interpreting this data. Right. Yeah. So this was a you know a fascinating study. What the authors did, and they should be commended for doing this, because again, I, I think every little bit counts, right? And that's why I'm a big fan of research letters. I've said this many times before, because I think it's a great way to kind of incrementally contribute to the literature and to share your experiences. And again, even if it's perhaps not the most generalizable information, I think what it does is it adds to that font of knowledge, as long as we are careful in the conclusions we draw. So what the authors did here was they said, okay, let's retrospectively look at, we've got 56 patients that uh, had an AFX treated at UC Davis, 50 of them were treated with Mohs, six of them were treated with wide local excision. Let's see what their outcomes were. And the authors found, well, they said, listen, the Mohs patients had like a 5% recurrence rate and the wide excision people had a 33% recurrence rate. That interestingly, touching on our discussion about significance, that was not significant from a, on a p-value level. And again, the reason why, again, let's step back. Well, how is it that 33% and 5% could be not significantly different? That has to do with sample size. So in general, p-values are driven by sample size. That's, again, an important principle because it also explains why you have to be so careful when you're doing big data and why there's been a push lately, especially with big data, to potentially not be relying on p-values because just having a lot of data points can potentially lower that p-value for you. But that was a, just a brief aside. They noticed then that the recurrences, first of all, I think there's a key clinical takeaway here, which is that all the recurrences they saw were in the first couple of years of treatment. This is important. This is not the first time this has been discussed in the literature, but I think it is really, really important to reiterate this on a clinical, practical level. When AFX recurs, AFX often recurs fairly early. And so what that means is that close clinical follow-up is so valuable. AFX is not something where you should say, oh, come see me in a year. And if you notice anything at home, let me know. It's something where you really want to make sure you're doing close follow-up because especially for those first couple of years, that can potentially make a big difference in terms of patient outcomes. Anyway, so they found that the Mohs patients, again, had that much lower rate of recurrence. And so at first blush, you might say, fantastic. Well, Mohs is amazing. We love Mohs for everything. I'm going to start treating acne with Mohs. The problem is that you've got to keep in mind um, that these were not, and this is what I was alluding to in my discussion of the last hydrochlorothiazide paper, you've got to keep in mind, these were not randomly assigned groups. So this was not a randomized controlled trial where they said, let's assign you to wide local excision versus Mohs. This was a situation where this is what was actually done. And they've got, you know, they're pretty smart clinicians there. So they know why they want to use Mohs for something and why they want to use wide local excision for something. And so the baseline differences between those groups likely explain a lot of the differences in survival. And that is a critical thing to keep in mind. You've got to, when you're looking at retro, again, when you're looking at, you know, retrospective data, you've got to make sure that the groups are comparable because otherwise what you're seeing may have nothing to do with Mohs versus a wide local excision. It probably has more to do with at baseline, how were those patients? And how do we know this? Well, if we look here, the wide local excision had much bigger tumors, right? They had like 2.6 centimeter on average versus one centimeter on average tumors, okay? Uh, younger age by 15 years. And most importantly, half of the patients treated with wide local excision have been treated with radiation previously, 
Okay, so that's crazy. That's a 50% versus 4%. Well, that's a massive difference. And that may well explain also where they treat with radiation therapeutically for the AFX. So essentially, we were talking about recurrent AFX tumors. And then of course, recurrence of a recurrence is going to be much more likely. So again, it's really, really important to kind of keep this in mind that those baseline differences likely accounted for the differences in recurrence here. Again, that said, is it valuable to look at this? Certainly, it's important to keep this in mind. And the authors do a good job of kind of putting their work in context. But again, that key argument that I would just make to really emphasize to people is number one, that you can't really necessarily take this at face value because, of course, they were not randomly assigned to different therapies. And number two, remember, those AFX recurrences are largely occurring in the first couple of years. So important clinical takeaway. And if the patients get past those first two years, the rate of recurrence is less than 1%, which is fantastic for those patients who do well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's sort of the, you know, and I always like to emphasize those things when I'm talking to patients, the danger, and I always find this, it's it's like threading a needle, right? Because you want to emphasize to patients, okay, you're kind of out of the woods, but you don't want them to say, okay, doc, see you later and and run away and never come in again. And so that's why it's so important to kind of couch that in terms of those optimistic terms, but also say, but listen, there's obviously a value in in continuing uh, surveillance as well. Yeah, never saying goodbye, probably. (laughs) All right, so the last article we're going to discuss is very interesting and relevant in today's quickly evolving technological landscape. So we're going to discuss AI, specifically chat GPT. And I think all of us have some small worry that we might be replaced by robots one day. But as we'll sort of get into, I think dermatologists seem to be safe for now. So Dr. Keegan O'Hearn et al. from Mayo they had an excellent article entitled Chat GPT Underperforms in Triaging Appropriate Use of Mohs Micrographic Surgery for Cutaneous Neoplasm. And I just want to applaud these authors because I think that they sort of tested Chat GPT in an excellent way, which was using something that's very readily available online, which is the most appropriate use criteria. A lot of dermatology is very nebulous and difficult and not a lot of information online, but this is very clear. And still yet, as we're going to talk about, ChatGPT didn't do a great job. It did okay, but not what we would have wanted. Yeah. So, I mean, this was an, an interesting article and I actually have an upcoming editorial on a similar topic that's going to touch on this as well, because I think it is important. I think it's also important though, to realize what these, these AI platforms are designed for and what they're not designed for. So whether it's a chat GPT or Google Bard or any other product that's out there, which is using essentially the same thing. One clarification, by the way, just to be clear, they use the 3.0, I believe in this, because the 4.0 was not out when they did the study for chat GPT, but what they authors looked at, and they said, as you mentioned, they said, let's see, you know, how does ChatGPT perform if we're trying to look at most appropriate use criteria, which is, again, you would argue pretty straightforward in terms of data. The issue, I think there are two critical takeaways from this manuscript. One is anybody who has used any of these uh, ChatGPT type products knows they sound remarkably confident. ChatGPT to me, it reads like a Gunner high school student paper, typically, if you ask it to do something, right? So it's kind of, it sounds like grammatically good. Like the word choice isn't fantastic, but it sounds grammatically appropriate. And they use a lot of like flowing sentences. Each paragraph flows from the last one in summary, blah, blah, blah. So it can kind of have that very authoritative sound to it. And then ultimately what it can create is a huge mountain of bullshit. 
And that's the key thing to kind of keep in mind is that it is nicely painted. Uh, I hope I can say that on here. I don't know. Uh, it's <laughs> nicely painted based on what is like on television these days. I think that's certainly fine. It's nicely painted with, you know, gold leaf, but at the same time, again, garbage in, garbage out, right? And so these systems are relying on what they are calling from the internet, as you mentioned. And even though AUC criteria are on the internet, there's a lot of other garbage on the internet. And so the problem is that the systems right now are not designed to really separate the wheat from the chaff here. Now, I think it's important to be fair and to say, listen, ChatGPT was never designed to provide a a thoughtful, detailed discussion of Mo's AUC criteria based on the literature out there. That is not what the system was designed for. And so I think it's important to put that out there and the authors acknowledge this. At the same time, we also have to think about how people use the data that they have, right? So even though all these systems were not really designed to accurately bring this data in, people are going to have a tendency more and more, especially as these things become integrated to rely on them to say, hey, what is the best treatment, et cetera, et cetera or what is the appropriate therapy. But essentially what the authors found in this study was they presented a whole bunch of scenarios and they said, hey, you know what? ChatGPT basically essentially is a random number generator. So about 70% of the time it goes along with the appropriate use criteria and the other 30%, it's totally off. And again, I'm not surprised by that. The other thing that's interesting is that a lot of these AI chatbots have built-in safeguards because they're trying to kind of like the way Google will sometimes, you know, they like, you know, this is not medical advice, et cetera, et cetera. They wanted to kind of argue that. And so the authors got around this by saying, you are a dermatologist. <laughs> now, what would you do as a therapy? And so even though there are those safeguards in place, it is very easy to get these systems to report back. But I think that key point is that the system was not designed to do this and the authors acknowledge that, but people are going to be trying to do it. And so I think it's important to realize that even though it sounds super, super convincing when it provides you with a multi-paragraph response, therefore, blah, 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 however, blah, blah, blah. In summary, three points are the important, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The thing is, it reminds me of an episode from my past when I was finishing up high school uh, and I was taking an English class with one of my favorite teachers. And it was like second semester of senior year, you're done, you're already in college, it doesn't really matter. And I went, I don't even remember what I put on there, but basically I wrote this long multi-page essay question response and he read it and he came to me and he took off. We, he, I vividly remember, I still have this. There was a picture of a matador, like a poster of a matador on the wall. And he rolled it up and he handed it to me and he said, and the bull award goes to Jonathan. Because you can write pages and pages and pages and say absolutely nothing. And that's the thing to keep in mind with ChatGPT. It can say a lot. It can sound like it's really, really smooth, but it can also be absolutely ridiculous in terms of what it's arguing. And so I think that is the key takeaway uh, for all of us to keep in mind. And I really hope that there's more of these studies that come out in all of medicine because it really is important because ChatGPT made headlines for passing the USMLE exam. So patients know that there's something there that it can answer some medical questions. And as you said, it's very easy to get around sort of their rules that it's not supposed to be answering medical questions, but it does. And for, for the most part, it got a lot of the easy appropriate use questions correct, but it got some really wrong though. Like for instance, it recommended wide local excision for extra mammary patch disease on the perineum. And I think most of us at this point would recommend Mohs and it's certainly in the appropriate use criteria. So like when it got it wrong, it, it was really wrong in my opinion. So I think more of these studies need to come out just to sort of clarify for everybody what chat GPT is good for. And like you said, I think it's good for doing a little bit of a BS essay for some things and 
medical use that's not there yet. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I know. Absolutely. And I, I think it's interesting because it's one of these fields where it's sort of like, it's exciting because everyone's playing with it now and it's so easy to access. And so it's kind of fun to put these things in and to see what you can, you can waste a lot of time doing it. But at the same time, you have to be really, really careful. And I agree. I think having the data out there, because maybe, I mean, in this self-fulfilling prophecy, right, as the new iterations are scouring the internet for data, they're going to see articles about the, they, I mean, they may take offense at it. Maybe the chat should be <laughs> Offended that we're saying ChatGPT isn't good at this, but maybe you know if there's enough of that out there, you could see a world in which there would be a caveat that would argue that you know well AI chatbots though are notoriously poor at calling the internet for you know things like appropriate use criteria, so therefore talk to your doctor. So I think it's important, it's valuable, it's good to be aware that this is out there, the patients are doing it, and it's important to take it with not just a grain of salt, but with a whole handful. And also for healthcare providers too. I mean, if you have a healthcare provider that's maybe not as skilled in understanding some of these things, then they just kind of go the easy route. So anyway, so I want to thank you so much. This was an excellent conversation. Three really interesting articles. I look forward to many more quarterly podcasts with you. It was so fun to talk to you. You make learning the literature fun. So thank you for that. Uh, well, thank you so much. And thank you again, really. You know, I really appreciate Jackie. And thank you so much again to the whole team for making this possible. And again, anyone has questions about these articles, anyone has issues with JAD International questions, comments, etc. always reach out directly. I love talking about this stuff and I'm fascinated by it and I enjoy it and I love it and I'm passionate about it. So thank you again for having me and wishing everyone a wonderful quarter and looking forward to chatting soon. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to another edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. For more dialogues, subscribe to us through the website of the American Academy of Dermatology, then link your subscription through your favorite podcast app. Remember, the subscription is free for residents. New podcasts are released each week in addition to free special bonus episodes. You can also listen to dialogues online through the AAD website. Thanks again for listening.